Hello, welcome back to Angels Anonymous, the podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa. Angels Anonymous is a health and spirituality podcast hosted by myself. I'm 25 years old, an ex-professional dancer. Now I'm a yoga instructor. I'm not teaching right now, but I'm certified in yoga. I'm also an integrative health coach doing my own practice now, and I'm sober. I'm in recovery, and I share vulnerably on this podcast about my struggles with addiction to pretty much anything and everything, including body image, food, relationships, comparison, and so much more. Through an open-minded perspective, I explain how you can overcome your struggles and finally feel like you're enough. Welcome! If this is your first time here, hello. So, so grateful that you're tuning in. And if you've listened before, if you've been an OG since day one, I fucking love you. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to me. You keep me going. Today's episode is about addiction, how I overcame it. When I asked a question about what I should talk about on the podcast, someone said, in regards to addiction, they wanted me to talk about the jelly neck curve, which I didn't even know what that was. I just Googled it and I have seen a picture of this before now that I see what it's called, but I didn't know it was called the jelly neck curve. So I'm going to talk about that. Um, How I got through the, I guess, like my experience in my downfall of my addiction, how I got through my rock bottom or my pivot point, what that looked like, and then how I came out of it and where I'm at now. And then at the end, I'll wrap up with how to support someone who's struggling with addiction. So before we get started, let's talk or let's ground and then I'll give you a little angel number and let's get into it. I'm recording this on my bed, so I'm leaning back for this one. If you're sitting... You can lay down, maybe put a hand on your belly, deep breath in through your nose, full breath out, slow breath in for four, three, two, one, hold at the top, and slow exhale for five. Four, three, two, one. Again, inhale. Four, three, two, one. Hold. Exhale. Five, four, three, two, one. Beautiful. Our angel number message for today is angel number 811. Angel number 811 brings a message not to rely upon others to define who you are, how you live your life, or what you're capable of. Set your own standards and do not allow others to make your choices and decisions for you. Step up and embrace your own powers of creation and direct your attention to what you want for your life, rather than react to what others may foist upon you. Build a strong connection with your true self. Be your own voice and be clear about who you are, what you want, and what works for you. Do not be afraid to exert your personal will in the direction of your passions and live your life according to your own personal truths and values. Ooh, I like that. It also says um, number 811 indicates that you're doing wonderful work and you're on the right path in regards to your spirituality and soul mission. You are encouraged to continue on your present course. That kind of hits home for me because... The last couple months, I've been struggling with expressing my needs, my desires, what I'm passionate about, not necessarily so much 
when it comes to my podcast, but more so in relationships and the things that I need. Um, and so that was a good reminder for me just to to know that it's valid and good for me to express myself and my passions and what I want and not let others sway me, I guess. My brain's thinking kind of slow today, so if this is an off episode, I'm sorry. All right, let's get into it, the content of today's episode. In terms of sobriety, I'm going to talk a little bit about what my journey was like, what how I got to my rock bottom, and where I'm at now, and kind of follow along with the jelly neck curve. So if you want a visual, you should just Google what a jelly neck curve is. Basically, it's like this little an upside down bell curve, if that makes sense. So at the top left, it talks about the start of your addiction, occasional relief with drinking, or for me, I'll I'll input like what it would sound like if they were talking about weed because I think they talk about alcohol only in this curve. So increase in tolerance with weed, definitely. Um, urgency of first smokes, yep. Unable to d- discuss my problem. I could talk about it sometimes depending on like who it was, but most of the time I would be in denial of it and not want to talk about it because I knew I wasn't ready to do something different. There was a lot of feelings of guilt. There was a huge dependence on weed. It got to the point where I literally, I couldn't survive without it. So I had a lot of guilt. I call it greening out or browning out. I didn't remember a lot. My memory was horrible after months and years of using every single day. Efforts to control failed repeatedly. I tried geographical escapes. Oh my god, this literally explains me to a T. So <laughs> this is called the crucial phase. There's three phases in this jelly net curve. The crucial phase, the chronic phase, and the rehabilitation. I don't know why. I don't know a ton about this curve, but I relate to it. So yeah, like I said, if you want to see a visual, pull it up on your phone or something while you're listening. I actually ended up moving to Greece one summer to try to convince myself that I could take a break from smoking for a couple months and eventually it found me. Weed found me again and I was back to doing it. I thought that I could escape my heartbreak from moving and my heartbreak and my substance use is very tied together. I tried to geographically change. I tried like 30 days sober. I remember I tried to do sober October in October of 2020 and I think I succeeded about 28 of the days but it was literally hell. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. I was miserable. I was literally counting down the days to when I could smoke again. Then it went back to trying to smoke every other day or throw my stuff away and only do it with friends. Literally just insanity. Trying to control it was so exhausting and so obsessive. All I thought about was doing that. Um, I avoided my family and my friends definitely. I would isolate myself. I had a lot of money troubles and I didn't like going to work because I was so anxious. I had so much social anxiety. That's why I wanted to numb out. But then I was super anxious because I thought everyone would know that I was stoned. I also lost my hunger cues. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say I neglected food. It was more like restrict and binge cycle, just got out of control. Definitely a loss of ordinary willpower. I felt like I had no willpower anymore. I felt like I had no self-trust in myself. I was unable to initiate action, definitely a moral deterioration as well, and impaired thinking. I just had 
so much fogginess like I literally couldn't think anymore and it, it was such an obsession like that's all I thought about the guilt and the shame and the obsession of it just consumed my mind and this was a slow process right like it started from using recreationally I think I tried it in high school like the end of high school then all of a sudden in college like using it with friends here and there and then I moved home after like the core of my heartbreak after like my freshman year of college and it just took off from there it started with smoking at night and then before class and then I couldn't like do my homework anymore I was high going to practice for cheerleading and just like everywhere all the time and I knew for years that I was ready to quit but I couldn't get myself to do something different I was really scared of what that meant I was scared of claiming that I needed help because I didn't I wasn't ready to do something different yet but I was like secretly crying out for help um and so my rock bottom happened like May-ish of 2021 and I talked to my mom about it we were in Moab actually and I used that trip as a an opportunity to connect with her because I finally like was able to get away from substance when I'm like with her it was like a different sort of safety when I was on vacation with her I could like not smoke because I didn't want to be stoned in front of her but I also still like drank um with her at dinner and stuff I don't know so eventually I opened up to her about it and that I needed help and she was like you need to go get help by yourself so I couldn't stop by myself and that's why I have the community of women that I have because I can't speak to everyone and we all need to hear multiple people's experiences to see what we relate to and like who's going to support us best in our recovery process. Yours might not look even close to what mine looks like, but I had to go to outpatient treatment, an intensive program for 16 weeks and do tests every week to make sure that I wasn't relapsing and all of this stuff to like keep me on track. It was super intensive. Whereas like one of my best friends who's sober with me in this journey, she got sober. I shouldn't say by herself, but without a structured program. She didn't, she definitely didn't do it alone. No one who stays sober does it by themselves. They have support around them of some sort. I always like to say the opposite of addiction is connection. Whatever it looks like for you, whatever way that you get connected, it's so important that you allow yourself to receive, to first ask and then receive help. So that's kind of where that this bell curve changes from that chronic phase of just like you're debilitated by your addiction to where it starts going in this upward direction. So the first thing is an honest desire for help. Once you get through that initial phase of withdrawal from whatever you were using, some are more physical and like really freaking real and intense and insane than others. Um, Marijuana for me was like a post-acute withdrawal symptom type of scenario. It's super real and it lasts for up to 18 months after you stop using. So for the first almost year, when people like said that they did Sober October and they felt so good for those 30 days and so motivated, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about because I'm nine months in and still feel like crap. So um, it took me a really long time to get to a point where I felt clear-headed and 
connected to myself again. The beginning of my sobriety, at least the first six months, was horrible. It was so hard. Um, But I did have an onset of new hope. I felt hopeful. I started group therapy. My self-esteem slowly started to return. I started to be able to think realistically. I had a new circle of stable friends. They might not be the friends that I hang out with today, but like the women in my small group for outpatient therapy and then the women that I started meeting in AA once that was over. And now I have a whole sober group of friends in Minnesota. And those are the people that I talk to the most. Also, my sponsor now, like these are the people that I connect with the most. I also feel like I had an increase of emotional control because I could lean on people. Like my emotional control and stability directly correlates with my consistency to connecting with others. Because if I'm only trying to hold myself accountable, it doesn't work. Yes, it's up to me and my higher power and me praying and meditating every day and doing all the things and journaling and reading the books and taking care of myself and going to meetings. But like if no one's looking out for me, I'm screwed. I'm not going to hold myself accountable. And that's why I love being a health coach is because I can hold you accountable to any types of goals that you have, whether it's health related, spirituality related, emotionally related relationships. Like we cover all of that. One of the main things that I talk about in my health coaching program is this circle called the circle of life. And it talks about what your primary foods are. Okay, so the primary foods are the areas in our lives that fuel our decisions of what we eat. So what we eat, the food, is secondary to these 12 areas. And the 12 areas are relationships, home environment, home cooking, physical activity, health, education, career, finances, creativity, spirituality, joy, social life, and I think that's it. I think I said relationships. Yeah. So those 12 areas are what we focus on. It just goes to show that regardless of if you're recovering from substance use disorder or not, these things are really important to focus on. We need people to look out for us, to take care of us, to hold us accountable. If you are looking to get sober, you definitely should connect with me or reach out to me, start coming to the Sunday groups. I have also a group specifically tailored to people who are sober and sober curious that me and three other of my girlfriends who are also sober started. And that's where we mainly talk about substance use, where we struggled, what our wins are, and like how freaking bomb living sober is. But in my Angels Anonymous group, the virtual hangouts on Sundays, we talk about All these different life categories that I just talked about um, that are within the circle of life. Last week, we talked about our visualizing our most aligned self and we literally shared out loud what our lives would look like and came into that energy just by talking about it and by speaking it to other people and like allowing yourself to share your dreams and dream without reason without logic just like let yourself be inspired and you know that you have daydreams like you I know all of us have visions of where we see ourselves, the things we dream of. Like I have this weird vision of me living alone in an apartment. I don't know why I say weird, but like cool, bomb, awesome vision of me living in an apartment by myself. I don't know exactly where, like for some reason I'm seeing an ocean, San Diego maybe, um, with a golden retriever, just independently like living living lavishly not like excessive wealth but just like enough to literally not feel to be okay with the fact that I 
deserve to have money and to be wealthy. Like, I deserve to not be in this grind of panicking and chaos and cleaning up mess after mess trying to like get my finances together it's like a part of me secretly thrives on being broke because then I have something to focus on and a mess to clean up um if you've ever looked into self-sabotage or fight or flight or just like you know those types of reactions and dysregulation from our nervous systems you'll understand what I'm talking about as far as just like self the self-sabotage of wanting to secretly stay broke like obviously consciously I don't want that but like my nervous system says otherwise because that's what I'm comfortable with anyways um how did I get into that (laughs) rant I was talking about getting back to having emotional control also I had a huge rebirth of ideas I really started to appreciate my family and friends and their efforts and their love and their support and I feel like they really appreciate me too my mom just texted me today actually and was like I just wanted to let you know how proud of you I am in your sobriety journey I don't take it one day for granted it gives me peace knowing that you're on this path so it's just so nice knowing that my mom doesn't have to hurt for me anymore. Obviously, she still prays for me and worries about me just in daily life. But like knowing that I'm okay and I'm stable and I'm sober is something that just like takes a huge weight off of her back. And I'm glad that my parents can can feel that way for me. I also feel like I'm just living in integrity with my life in general. Showing up places high was not fun. Showing up to work high is not fun or to family functions. It's like just this huge weight of shame and guilt and like secrecy and it feels that's like literally the worst feeling in the world to me. So I'm really glad that I'm not living in that anymore. I also continue with group therapy and have support now I'm at a point of where I feel like life is opening up with a road ahead with more opportunities than I ever thought were possible financial abundance is coming in in small ways (laughs) Oakley has just been hiding in here listening to me Oakley you don't even know it but you're just getting some nuggets of wisdom someday you'll know what I'm talking about what I want to talk about is the shape of this curve and some people don't like this shape because it leads us to believe that like there's just this downward spiral and then once you get sober there's this infinite like upward trajectory of just thriving in life and that is not true at all it should be like a really wild roller coaster of squigglies and ups and downs forever and ever and ever but like moving in an upward trajectory because nothing is as low as your lowest rock bottom or pivot point before you get sober but I will say that in the AA culture what I've really struggled with is this enormous amount of fear-based pressure and like emphasis around relapse and I have relapsed I have used again not with my substance of choice not with weed or alcohol um thank god but even if I did I don't think that my relapse journey would look like anyone else's because it wouldn't like we all have different experiences and I feel like what I really resist with the AA program and what I'm still wrestling with is like the black and white nature of how they describe addiction and like to drink is to die and that's just not my reality but 
using for me is a slow spiritual death. It's a slow emotional death internally that no one can really realize. And it's subtle for me to even feel like sometimes I don't even know what's happening. But even when I started dabbling with psychedelics again on the concert scene and like in hikes and stuff, I started after my one year um, and only did it a handful of times. And like nothing bad happened. It was fun and I enjoyed it. But it just wasn't what I was looking for. There was still a hole there that I wanted to fill. It was a fun night, but it's like afterwards the obsession of of wondering, am I going to use at every single concert? When is, you know, when is enough enough? Am I going to be able to choose to be substance free at some concerts or some hikes and then others use? Like, it's just way too much insanity for my brain. And so I went back to the rooms of AA, um, not really knowing why. There's just like a Saturday women's meeting that I really like. I love hearing the women's stories. Yeah, you can. Okay. Substance for me right now does not scratch the itch that I'm looking for. And I have all of this rational thinking in my mind of like, well, I can just do psychedelics here. Even now, still, I'm like, I just want to do a fat acid trip and then I'll be completely sober for now. There's always another excuse of why we shouldn't get sober yet, whether it's like fitting in with friends, connecting with people. Um, I don't know. There's missing out on socialization. Like, yes, you're obviously going to have to give up a lot. It's not like I hated using. I loved getting effed up. I loved escaping. I loved losing my mind. It's not like I didn't like it. That's why it's hard to decide on sobriety because you do feel like you're missing out on so much, but you don't know how much you're going to gain on the other side of it. Like all of this illusion of feeling connected to people more deeply when you're high or when you're on psychedelics, that increased feeling of love is so temporary and it's so fleeting. And when you actually do the hard work of facing your emotions and feeling shit and moving through it like the only way out is through and I still dance around it and go under it and hop over it and you know sidestep it's around my emotions you don't need substances to avoid it believe me I figured out all the other ways through you know not honoring my boundaries with relationships or with my phone Instagram Netflix what you name it I try to avoid my emotions and then I'll just hit this place where my anxiety is so high or I'm so overwhelmed and I just can't do it anymore and I crack and I'm just feel it all and then I meet myself and I'm like it wasn't that effing bad but I'm not gonna lie being sober is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and anyone who's sober will say that is the hardest thing but the most worth it things in life are are the most challenging and that's not to say like in relationships it shouldn't be fun and happy and enjoyable but like even in the situationship relationship whatever commitment without labels that I've been in the last three months it has been predominantly filled with joy and light and excitement and you know mutual interest and I love him but it's also challenged me so freaking much like so much my friend who's sober also texted me today and she goes okay please tell me how you're dating this guy as an anxious attachment is he just secure or what because I started dating and I'm unwell remember when I said everything was good in therapy lol this shit opened up so much stuff and it's 
a lot in all caps and I go it's a constant battle I wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't feel safe to talk to him about anything he is a very good communicator is clear about being committed to me and pretty emotionally mature for reference I literally told him about this today like him and I are so open and I've decided that I'm at a point where like I'm sick of explaining (laughs) what our dynamic is because it sounds really bad when I talk about it but like the people in my life that I know and I trust and I know will be real with me and like call me out for my bullshit aka my mom my sponsor like a couple of my really close friends I'll talk to them about it but I'm like I started telling all my coworkers about it and all of my friends that like I don't know it's not like I don't trust their advice but sometimes I just feel like I open myself to too much feedback and then I start overthinking it and it self-sabotages what we have. So I'm at a point where I'm just like, I know what we have. I don't need to justify to anyone why we don't have a label yet, why I can't be like Instagram public with him yet. We're on our own timeline and he's working through his own shit too and I'm willing to compromise that um, and meet him where he is for now as long as our communication stays open, as long as he's committed to me, as long as he's expressing love for me and like showing up in the ways that I would want as a in a relationship as a boyfriend um he's still acting and showing up in an in alignment with what I need and what I desire so yes it is hard because I am at a place where I do want commitment and like being sober and entertaining uh geez being sober, excuse me, and entertaining a relationship for the first time after a year of like dating celibacy basically is so fucking hard. Like what my friend was saying is like I thought that I had shit figured out and I was good in therapy and you know you get to this place of balance and then you allow yourself to date and all your shit comes up all your mother and father wounds all your childhood trauma all the generational fucking wounding it's like shit it is so hard but you'll know when it feels right i attracted this relationship and the love that he has for me because i gave that to myself i fucking know that for a fact the guys that I attracted before I really committed to this path of like focusing and working through my childhood trauma, which I still haven't even really scratched a surface on. I'm in the process of getting a new therapist. So the work's never done. I've done hella fucking work, but I'm literally only just begun as well. So it goes hand in hand. I think when someone really triggers our anxious attachment and can't validate it or we don't feel safe to open up we're either not ready to handle a connection in a romantic way yet or it might not be the person that we're meant to be entertaining and we might be attracting someone who's actually triggering us more than it is more than we're attracting from like a healthy healed breaking the patterns or cycles type of place and I know for a fact the man that's in my life right now is someone that I attracted from a healthy healed place like no fucking doubt in my mind he makes me feel like home I feel so safe with him and I have never felt this way about someone who also feels this way about me like I've either been so obsessed with them that it's like I ache at the thought of not having them and even when I'm with them I still ache because I feel like I don't fully have them it's just like this fleeting feeling like my OG ex made me feel like that and he didn't even know he was doing that I just felt like I never had him like 
I never felt secure with him. It just felt like he was going to leave me. I felt like he was going to abandon me. And that's what ended up happening. Both of the things that we were scared of came true. Now I'm at a place, well, before, so there was him. And then I attracted guys that were like anxiously attached to me. And that triggered my avoidant. And then I pushed them away. And now I'm at a place where like I feel safe enough to receive safe love. And I still might be missing some blind spots. Like there might be lessons in the future with this relationship I'm in right now that I'm like, who was I fucking kidding? Like he was totally avoidant and I was totally anxious and I didn't even see it. But right now it feels secure for me. And that's all that matters is I'm not obsessing over him. I'm not panicking. Yes, there have been really hard moments where I'm just like unfucking well and have to do everything I can to like emotionally regulate when I'm about to lose my shit because I feel like him and I are going to end or some like disagreement happens and then it just goes south and things can go south really fucking fast relationships especially intimate ones are so fragile and the beginning stages are the most fun but also the fucking hardest when you just like don't know what you are it's like the new exciting things are so fun getting a new job getting into a new relationship moving to a new place but there's no feelings of familiarity or consistency or home or steadiness it's all just fucking new and you don't know what's going on so The fact that you're losing your shit, babe, um, the one that texted me or anyone who's in this place, I'm with you. It's hard. It's fucking hard. But I just want to assure you that there are people out there in combination with you doing the work on yourself and like going to therapy, doing what you fucking need to do to look at your shit. It's not easy. But like once you do that, you will start to attract people who mirror that and you'll be capable of receiving the love that they have to give. If we're in a dysregulated place emotionally, a secure love could come our way and then we're going to push it away because we don't think we're worthy or we don't feel safer secure to receive a a peaceful home kind of love we want the roller coaster I no longer want the fucking roller coaster I don't want to feel like that and I've realized that peace is not boring serenity is not like mundane there is beauty in the mundaneness of life and I think that's a huge part of sobriety was realizing that like I get to find the beauty in the mundane every single day and nothing about this fucking life is mundane we just are so we take it for granted and we're so used to it every day that it seems mundane but once you we get intentional with how we wake up and say thank you for our breath and all these things like we were talking about in the hangout on Sunday my friend Rose brought up how she was grateful for fucking toilet paper because her friend was in India and like they didn't have toilet paper and it's like I get to wake up and wash my face in this bougie ass bathroom with toilet paper and good ass face wash and a whole morning routine and I get to brush my teeth and like feel clean and have clean laundry in a huge ass closet like we dream of living this luxury life and visualizing me living by myself and having xyz but it's like I literally am already living a luxurious life and being sober helps you get attuned to those beautiful subtleties like when I was suffering and drowning in like the fog of substance abuse and just like not fucking knowing up from down because I'm so clouded and numbing all of my emotions and my emotional internal GPS is completely shut off because I'm just like pushing 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 my feelings down with weed 
or any other substance or sex or whatever the fuck it was hinge serial dating like I've had all the phases I was just so lost and like couldn't appreciate anything and I had this ache to like go home to the stars I want the aliens to fucking abduct me and like I still fucking want that but I've found a new way to fill this void and this ache and it's with connection and it's with people who have also gone through similar shit and once you start opening yourself and you start seeking they will come to you you don't even have to find them like these people will come to you if you found my podcast if someone sent it to you you're already on the path like you're already on it no fucking doubt so I just want to assure you that if you're in the contemplative phase there is nothing there is no guidelines like there is nothing that I can tell you to do of like how to get sober how to get through that pivot point other than just please share your story free yourself from the shame of it I talk about this on every fucking episode like open up about it message me send me 10 voice memos I literally don't care just like send it get it out and then your soul will have a little bit more clarity and then you might know the next step to do maybe tell someone else that you love maybe decide like just for one morning you're not going to smoke or whatever but like eventually I had to get to a point where I couldn't set the rules for myself anymore I had to have something outside of me holding me accountable and I know that's not for everyone outpatient treatment intensive outpatient treatment or therapy programs aren't accessible to everyone and it also might not be what you're ready for that might be too intimidating to admit that you're an addict and you need help and like you're gonna pee in drug tests like you just might not be there I also had to get to my rock bottom for years after I knew I wanted to quit so please allow yourself compassion and talk to me so I can give you some compassion and validation of like girl man I've fucking been there like I know what that feels like it is okay you're going to get through it the things you dream about the versions of yourself you envision yourself being sober and successful and wealthy like you have these desires because a future version of yourself has already fucking lived it right it's not like this future illusion of if I'm gonna have it I wonder if no there's already a parallel universe out there that all of this exists for you you just get to tap into the energy so I hope that's less intimidating knowing that like it's literally already happened the past present and the future all exist at the same time time is not linear so all of your dreams and all of your desires are literally just your future self whispering to you being like yo this is what you're meant to do listen to me follow the calling maybe it's a career dream maybe it's getting sober whatever it is like fucking follow it I want to wrap up with how to help people who are dealing with addiction. The do's and don'ts of helping a loved one with addiction, um, it, it's obviously personal. I would say the first do is have compassion. Addiction definitely is considered a disease, and normally we don't fault people with a physical disease like diabetes or, or cancer. Instead, we would be really compassionate and willing to help them survive their illness. And addiction really deserves the same level of compassion and understanding because addiction can be pinholed into thinking it's like a character flaw or like a moral fault or a choice but it's not it's a disease and it's also crucial to understand that there could be external factors that encourage addiction like stress or mental illness and addiction is oftentimes a coping mechanism for stress it offers temporary relief like I said the fleetingness of this relief may contribute to someone repeatedly seeking out potentially 
potentially destructive habits and that develops over time into an alcohol or a weed or an opiate or whatever it is addiction. So whenever you're learning how to help someone who's struggling, a family member, a loved one with any type of addiction, being compassionate is also a great way to help build trust, which is crucial for successful, long-lasting recovery. And this is for anyone that you want to support. I, My sisters come to me because they know that they can trust me. When they're at rock bottom and they don't want me to tell anyone else that they're struggling, they'll call me because they know they can trust me. They know I'm not going to judge them. They know I'm going to say I fucking been there. I love you. I feel you. Like I'm not going to try to provide them solutions. And that's how I've built trust with people. And it's been through a lot of fucking trial and error of like telling them what to do and providing solutions and judging them and talking over them and not hearing them. But through time, like you learn how to support people little by little and you figure out what works and what doesn't. So definitely being a listening ear, not offering solutions and just being like, I'm here for you. I love you. Just hold space and give a hug. You literally don't have to say anything. Do not shame or criticize. Human nature sometimes forces us to shift the blame because it's easier to understand the problem if we know the source. But the cause of addictions is not black and white. So there's never really just one thing to blame. So more importantly, the person with the addiction is not at fault for the disease. I would also say to avoid implying or outright stating that your loved one is to blame for their addiction. If you ever shame or criticize a family member who's struggling with alcohol addiction, weed addiction, opioid addiction, it's really counterproductive to their recovery. Tough love may have a small part in helping someone come to terms with like needing support and like needing to change but this is not the place for it part of practicing compassion compassion for your loved one involves understanding that shaming your loved one may do them more harm than good so instead talk with positivity and encouragement offer the idea of a future of successful long-term recovery give them a lot of verbal and physical encouragement rather than lectures or nagging Um, I would say do expect difficulties. Rehab recovery is really fucking difficult. There's a lot of reasons why a person may be reluctant to seeking treatment, including all of the shit that I experienced, shame, stigma, denial. Someone might not be willing to admit that they have an addiction problem, let alone consider treatment. That's where I was for years, and it's a very uncomfortable, shameful, dark, lonely place to be. Um, Also, there's still a lot of stigma around diseases of the brain, like addiction and various mental illnesses, and your loved one just might be unable or unwilling to expose themselves to it, which contributes to that inner denial, and then like even if they've come to admit it they still don't want others to know because there's so much shame around it because we feel like we'll be looked down on or it'll endanger endanger our job status or relationships if we admit that we have an addiction Um, there's also the risk of relapse which can become this cloud of dread over you or over your loved one so while it's always a possibility, it's hardly ever helpful to focus on it. Instead, focusing on building positivity and encouragement is the key, not focusing on the relapse because no one can ever fucking guarantee that we will never use again. I I cannot guarantee you that for the rest of tonight. Like, 
I focus on literally just the next breath because I don't know what today's going to hold. I don't know what the next moment's going to hold. I don't know if I'm going to be alive tomorrow. And I think that's why the just for today saying in AA is so crucial and useful. Um, Another don't is expect immediate change. How to help someone who struggles with addiction is one of the best ways is to be realistic in your expectations. Long-term recovery is not a quick fix. It's an ongoing process for your loved one that takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and continued support from professionals and family. Some treatments might work for some time and then they'll need to be changed if one treatment doesn't work, it doesn't mean that all treatments are going to fail. It just means that you have to find the specific one that will work for you and your loved one. Um, my parents, my loved ones had to go through so much shit. I was so irritable and snappy and horrible to them for the first year, like horrible to be around. And I would just cry and apologize and be like, I am experiencing post-acute withdrawal symptoms. It was really helpful for me personally to go through an outpatient treatment program because I learned words and verbiage and terms that helped me understand and explain what the fuck I was going through and not just think I was like broken for having all these mood swings I'm like oh I'm actually going through withdrawals and like this is a normal thing especially with weed addiction that has a lot of stigma around it of like there's no physical withdrawals the fuck there's not it's literally it's insane so um yeah just understanding that it's it's a rough road it's really hard um especially at first a do would be to educate yourself. Knowledge is power. Educating yourself on addiction and treatment is a benefit when learning how to help someone with an addiction. If you're wondering how to help an alcoholic um, daughter or son, research it. Research alcoholism. Re learn the symptoms of what weed addiction, alcohol addiction, as well as the treatments available look like. Educate yourself on the specific types of recovery that your family member, your loved one is in so that you can better understand what they're going through and what sort of help they're receiving. It's also useful to learn about addiction in general and find out the questions or find out the answers to questions like, what is addiction? How does addiction occur? Why do some people become addicted? How is addiction treated? What are the different treatment options? What is a holistic therapy and how does it work? The more you know, the better you'll understand what's going on and be able to help your loved one because it's not their job to educate you on what they're going through or why they struggle with addiction or what their treatment looks like. Of course, ask open-ended questions and if they want to talk about what they're going through, like open that conversation. But a lot of people are so mentally and emotionally exhausted that they don't really want to talk about it. So educating yourself and being like, oh, I learned about this and like making them feel understood and like you're actually putting in an effort is so valid, <laughs> valid, is so valuable and I can't even describe like whenever any of my friends would just be like, I'm not going to drink tonight or like I'm not going to drink around you or understood even a fucking sliver of what I was going through based on like, oh, yeah, my sibling went through addiction and this happened or like this is what they learned or just anything that you can relate to and speak to. Don't act like you know what we're going through because you don't unless you're also struggling with addiction. Um it's a fine line of relating to us on, you know, addiction and talking about it. But I would say get finding ans answers to those questions and just studying up on it, listening to podcasts 
is key. I love Rich Roll. He talks a lot about addiction on his podcast. Um, he also talks about psychedelic recovery and like how psychedelics have helped in his sobriety and like doctors have been on it about that and that actually was like one of the main reasons why I felt compelled to go back to psychedelic use but one of the things they talk about is the environment in which you do it in and the integration process and I was fully self-prescribing my psychedelic therapy it was not therapy at all it was recreational use it's like saying that It's like saying that smoking weed at a concert is like what I'm doing to help with my chronic back pain or whatever. When in reality, I could be like using prescribed doses of marijuana for specific physical pain, not at a concert. Like that would be medicinal use and recreational use would be like out fun with your friends, not having like a supported environment or controlled dosage. Um, That was not my experience at all. It was not medical. So I'm not closed off to psychedelics, but that's not my path right now. And I know that if it's meant to be in my path, it will come to me because I'm open to it. I'm not going to like desperately search for it till I find something, but I'm open to it. And I talk about it enough that I know it's going to come my way, enter into my universe if and when it's the right time. I also potentially would like to get off of my... um anti-anxiety medication and microdose with a psychologist or a psychiatric or a psychiatrist that could prescribe me that but I will not self-diagnose it so uh, we'll see where that goes excuse me um Okay, let's do a couple more. Don't enable your loved one. There's a fine line between helping someone with addiction and enabling them. Sometimes when we think we're protecting a loved one from the consequences of their addiction, we're really just enabling them to continue with potentially destructive behavior. For example, if you're trying to figure out how to help someone with a substance use problem, keeping them from you know, smoking or drinking and driving is helpful since that could put them in danger. However, consistently offering to drive them home whenever they get out, go out and get too fucked up or too high is enabling their actions because it's setting up a formula in which you're constantly available to rescue them. Um, Studies show that people with addictions are more likely to proactively seek treatment when they're forced to face the consequences of their actions. So if you want to know how to help someone with with addiction, they don't want to be saved. Just let them make mistakes without the promise of your rescue. Um, Do seek counseling or therapy. Addiction affects everyone differently, especially the loved ones that are closely connected to the the person going through addiction. So you going and getting professional help to get out of your head or just help regulate your emotions with what you're going through is also necessary. Don't give in to manipulation. A lot of us can be manipulative and clever when it comes to needing someone to feed into our addiction. Please do take care of yourself. Indulging in self-care is not selfish. Being a martyr is more selfish than taking care of yourself. Like you need to put yourself first or you'll never be able to fill anyone else's cups. Um, And don't violate their privacy. In taking care of yourself and attending therapy, you might be tempted to vent about your loved one with an addiction and 
Yes, you should be as honest about your feelings as possible when getting therapy, but it's also important to respect their privacy. And that's really relevant when discussing someone with addiction to friends or family. So just make sure that the person is okay being talked about and having their struggles discussed. If you attend counseling with this loved one, just make sure that you don't reveal what was said in session to others. And if your loved one attends therapy or counseling on their own and they don't want to discuss what they talked about in session, just respect that and don't push them for details. Another part that you might not have considered is what you can expect once they begin treatment. You might end up experiencing... Oh no, sorry. You may end up experiencing a lot of emotions such as relief, anxiety, anger, sadness, shame. Like you are directly tied to this person going through recovery or going through active addiction. So just know that it's a perfect time for you to focus on yourself more and your healing when someone else enters treatment or when someone else starts getting help. You could also reach out to support groups who are in a similar situation as you. If you find yourself blaming your loved one for their addiction and its impacts on your life, you should definitely speak to a therapist and work through those feelings in a healthy way because addiction is a disease disease and it's not someone's fault. I know it's very hurtful and very harmful to go through that and to witness someone who's going through that. You got to take care of yourself because someone who's going through addiction cannot handle the weight and shame of your emotions and you projecting what what they've done to you back onto them like absolutely not. That's like the last thing that someone needs and that would spiral them into a relapse most likely. So that's all I've got. <laughs> this was a way longer episode than I thought it was going to be. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the little addiction sobriety talk. Sometimes I feel like I'm redundant because I know I've talked about this shit before, but you said that you wanted to hear about it. So here it is again. If you liked it, give me a five-star review on Spotify, share it with your friends, re-listen to it. If something hit, you'll always take something different away from a podcast another time that you listen to it. You might have tuned something out that is valuable and I'll see you Sunday. If you want to hang out with me virtually, sign up through the Google Forms link in my TikTok bio. It's not on my Instagram bio anymore because Instagram banned the link. Um, I think I talked about that in the last episode, why that happened. And um, what else? That's it. Virtual hangouts are 7 p.m. Central Standard Time every Sunday. Otherwise, I'll be back next week. Love you. Bye. Bye.